Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Therapy notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals just keeps getting better and better. With legendary customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're giving you all the tools you need to succeed, whether you're a solo clinician or a group practice. Try them free for two months using promo code MODERN today. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back, Modern Therapists. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Woodhelm with Katie Renoy, and this is the podcast for therapists about the things going on in our professions, the clients that show up in our office, and how we can better serve them. And as we continue to build to our catalog of episodes, there's always topics that are new to the show, which surprises me for as long as we've been around. And we are joined today by Jamila Dawson, LMFT, and Dr. Theo Burns, both sex therapists, talking about working with sex workers in our practice and the ways that this can come up in our office. And they were wonderful in sending over a copy of their book, Essential Clinical Care for Sex Workers. We'll talk a little bit more about that throughout the show here, but I got a chance to get through a pretty big part of this before recording. And so... If you want to be on our show, send us stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for joining us and sharing your expertise with us here today. Glad to be here. Yeah, excited to be here. (laughs) We're so excited to have you here. And just to clarify, I reached out first before you guys sent us stuff. I'm not saying we won't take unsolicited gifts, but... Anyway, but the first question that we ask all of our guests is, who are you and what are you putting out into the world? Well, I am a sex therapist. I am what I call a pleasurist. I have become fascinated by pleasure, how it works, what we have ideas about, how we don't tend to like it in this culture. We only view it in very specific ways. And what I'm putting out into the world is how critical pleasure is, that it's quite radical I would say it's when I look at all the different movements that are out there that are about world changing, the core of them, they are about the pleasure of connection, the pleasure of just having a good life. I'm Theo Burns. I use he, him, his pronouns. I'm a licensed psychologist and a licensed professional clinical counselor. I've been in practice for almost 20 years, and I'm also a professor at the University of Southern California. And I have a real strong value around comprehensive sex education for people across the entire lifespan. So young folks, adolescents, college students, folks in assisted living facilities who identify as elderly. I'm really a big proponent of people getting the education that they need to make value-based decisions about the pleasure in their lives. I love that. One of the things that I've come across a lot in my career as an educator, as a podcast host, and talking with a lot of students and trying to make our fields better, one of the areas that I often hear people point to is one of the things that seems to be missing most from graduate education is 
talking about sex. And mm -hmm. there's, you know, kind of this, here's a credit or a credit and a half class that talks about the organs of sex, but it doesn't really get into pleasure of sex, how to improve people's sex lives a whole lot, mm -hmm. better air quotes around this, you know, talk about the dysfunctions that happen in sex. And so I want to just start this out with like, how did you get into talking about sex more and especially into bringing sex workers and sex work into the conversation as a part of your professions? I always like to say that a lot of the work that I do as a therapist and as a mental health trainer, it actually came to me because it was not available to me. And so I like to say, I like to take the Swiss cheese approach to professional development, which is <laughs> I often found the holes in what I wanted and created the spaces because I couldn't find other things. And I share stories about how as someone who was doing their hours for licensure in a lot of mental health facilities where sex workers would often access services as a pre-licensed person, I would look for literature that I could use to support affirming understandings about the work I was doing. And there wasn't much. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the work was focused on getting people out of the industry. It was illness-based. And honestly, it was just kind of like sickening. <laughs> and so I think a lot of that started a fuel for wanting to tell another side of the same story. Mm -hmm. For me, I used to work at different adult education-based adult stores, which I wish there was an official internship program. I think that would be amazing. And so I talked a lot about sex. I listened to a lot of people. A lot of sex workers came in to either purchase toys for their work, or if they were seeing a client, they were bringing a client in to kind of do some work with the client, like either buying stuff that was part of their experience. And I enjoyed seeing what they did. And I think what I really started to see was kind of how other people reacted to them. And I started going to grad school while I was still working at the Pleasure Chest. And I saw the difference between how we were talking about sex, sexuality, and sex workers in school versus what I was seeing, the joy, the creativity, as well as the complete lack of support, both legally and emotionally for sex workers. And to learn to Theo, that made me really angry. It made me really frustrated about the field. It made me kind of doubt my interest in this field of if this is how this field looks at people who also just want and need support then is this really the right field for me? Luckily, I was like, I don't have to look at their way of doing it. I'm going to do it my way. <laughs> and um, time and luck led me to collaborating with Theo. So Jamila, I want to go into that a little bit more because I think it ties very well into the question that we ask towards the beginning of most episodes is what are we getting wrong as a profession? Mm -hmm. And so you had an interesting juxtaposition there. You were working at the Pleasure Chest. You were also going to grad school. What are we getting wrong? And you guys go into this a lot in the book. So I definitely recommend, you know, kind of taking Chapters a look at one that. Through three. <laughs> one through three. But from your perspective, what are we getting wrong as a profession when we're thinking about sex work and sex workers? I mean, what I would say this, we are not here to save people. Even if they are not sex workers, clinicians need to stop thinking we can save people. I'm going to be very blunt. I think that comes from really white supremacist kind of dominant culture way of thinking of, I have it together, you don't, it's my responsibility to help you get better. And that leads to these contradictions in our field. It leads us to, again, look at our clients as resistant or a problem. 
And I don't want any part of that. My work is about how do I stay human and how do I support my clients to stay human, find more people to be human with, be in relationship with. So I think we're looking at it wrong. We're also not focused on really as a field of how radical we can be. We can be change agents. Like we literally have the DNA to here's how we can help people. Here's how we can be trauma-informed. And instead, too often what I see is clinicians who have been trained to focus more on control, to be afraid, afraid of the state, afraid of their clients, afraid of messing up. And we lose all these opportunities when we're orienting in this fearful place, this anti-pleasure place. Theo? Yeah, no, I totally second those comments, Jamila. I think the place that I would add would be around just an idea that, like many other jobs, being in the sex work industry is complicated. Some people like their jobs. Some people hate their jobs. Some people like their jobs some days and not like their jobs other days. It's when we have jobs that are sex-focused that therapists get really invested in helping people, quote-unquote, leave their job. And Jamila and I have spent the good part of the last three or four years really not only capitalizing on our own clinical work, but also being really invested in learning more just about the kind of labor structures that are involved in the sex work industry. And it gets really complicated when you ask not only mental health professionals, but I'll just go bigger and say social service providers about their Mm -hmm. biases about work where sex is involved. And people get real nervous real quick. And so when I hear the question, what are we getting wrong? I think a lot about what are the biases that we have about the relationship between sex and work? Mm-hmm. Or work itself. That what yeah, is, that's right. Right? What is work supposed to be? What's it should be? You know, a lot of times criticisms I have of sex workers is you're using your body, which I don't understand if we all use our body to do work. And there are people who work in industries where they are absolutely physically using their body. And so again, why is there this huge pressure on sex workers of, oh, you're using sex as part of the work that you do. And suddenly the rules kind of are different. I really don't see anybody trying to get hedge fund managers out of their business. (laughs) Just saying. Very fair. Or construction workers, if we're really going to people who use their bodies. Uh, Yep. Thryzer is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thryzer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate up front. From the client's perspective, Thryzer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thryzer manages the claims end-to-end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thryzer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thryzer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. 
I do appreciate that you spend a significant portion of your book talking about, you know, looking at your biases, which I think for a lot of areas in our fields, there's a lot of good intention of like, you know, check your biases. It's something that comes up in a lot of conversations. Mm -hmm. When it comes to biases around sex work, give us some concrete stuff here, because I think that this is such a new way of looking at this kind of stuff that like, I can imagine a lot of clinicians just being like, yep, I've got them. And then just not doing something with them. <laughs> I would hope they'd be self-aware enough to say like, oh yes, I have them. Because oftentimes people will act as though they don't have any biases. And Theo and I are very clear of, you're going to have biases. We've all been swimming in this culture that is very sex negative and is very anti-sex work. And so you're going to have biases. Know this. But your question is kind of what are some of the biases that we have heard of? Yes. Oh, anything from they must have had trauma that they would want to do this. They must have been abused as a child that they want to do this or need to do this. Theo, others? Well, and I guess one thing that I'll just say is a lot of that bias comes from a larger systemic frame and how we view sex work. So in the book, we talk a lot about this idea that mental health has actually created a whole system and culture around hating people in the industry. And some of that comes from like really bad research where we've done some really awful studies. It also comes with the way that we really actually just confirm the biases that we have. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it is that we don't actually look at the intersections that many sex workers have with other parts of their identity sphere. So we talk a lot about the idea that sex work and migration are hugely intertwined. Mm -hmm. And yet what's interesting is, is that when we look at individuals who have migrated to the United States and are involved in other industries, right, we don't have some of the same concerns with those industries that we do with individuals in the industry. And so some of that bias is also around what is it about not only our xenophobia, our systemic racism, our blatant misogyny, our hatred of trans people, right? So all of those pieces, because unfortunately, sex workers have disproportionate demographic rates in certain areas. And so also looking at if we have to actually look at sex work, not only will we have to look at our own anti-erotophobic bias, then we'd have to look at all of our other systemic biases as well. And if we don't want to look at erotophobia, we really don't want to look at how we're like racist, sexist, and homophobic. And I would also add the being neurodivergent. So many of my clients who are sex workers talk about that they have ADHD or they may have or in the past had a TBI or they have people in their family that they're caring for and they need jobs that offer flexibility, that offer a higher rate of pay for the time spent doing it. And most jobs do not offer both the flexibility as well as a good rate of pay. And so one of the smartest things to ask yourself is, What do I have to do in order to make enough money so that I can do what I need to do, which is care for myself and care for the people who I love and who are dependent on me? Totally. The last thing I'll just add is that I am based in Los Angeles, as is Jamila. And so we often joke about some of the entertainment bias related to the sex work industry as well. So media is really great at depicting certain types of sex work and saying that certain types of sex work are true for everybody. And usually what it is, is like the damsel myth, right? So we are very great at having like the sex worker who has no resources, Mm -hmm. has no ability to be empowered, and often needs like some sort of male identified person with a lot of resources to come and save them. Like pretty woman, right? I was just going to say, pretty woman, like... (laughs) 
we all love Julia Roberts. We all love Richard Gere. And yes, it was based on a opera, which also has some issues with it. <laughs> Gorgeous opera, but some issues with the storytelling. But this, I need somebody to rescue me and I'm very pretty and I'm very like, and isn't the great thing is I no longer have to do sex work at the end of the story. Yeah. So for some folks that are like, wait, what? Not all sex workers are Julia Roberts. Maybe we can talk through a little bit like, what does sex work look like now? And to tie something else in there that I read in the book is the hierarchy. Is that your term? Because that is okay. Because I was reading that. I was like, oh my gosh, like that was kind of where I realized, oh, I have some bias within that. Mm -hmm. And so maybe we can talk about what is it and what is the hierarchy? Yeah. So actually, the hierarchy is a term that has been used in activist communities for multiple decades and is based actually in social science research. And it wasn't called the hierarchy forever. In fact, in the early 1970s, there were social science researchers who used all sorts of other kind of really negative classist understandings around kind of hierarchy within sex work communities. And it was more around activist communities and sex worker outreach communities that really claimed that term. But the term really speaks to the idea that just like in many different other communities, there are different types of sex work. And unfortunately, many of those types of sex work are differentiated from one another by the type of location that one works in, whether they work outside or inside, whether they work independently or they may work for, let's say, some sort of an institution or company like a brothel or a club. The other piece that's also important is, is that many people will make some decisions about where they work based on the type of safety that they have. And so what we often hear about is the more kind of independence that you might have or the more likely that you are to work inside, the farther up the hierarchy you might actually go because you are safer, you may have more empowerment, you may have more connection to the actual money that you receive versus it going to some sort of agent who may pay you what you're worth, but may not. And so that term is really interesting. But what we've heard from sex work communities is that the internalized hierarchy around, hey, I internalize these different structures and this kind of understanding and that that might have huge direct impact on things like my self-esteem, mm-hmm. my ability to see my work as valuable, my ability to set boundaries with clients. So all of those things come into play as well. You know, there can be people who have kind of what I would consider kind of the courtesan style of doing sex work. And that is very much, you know, again, more similar to Pretty Woman. And people can sort of wrap their heads around that of, well, you're pretty and you wear really pretty clothes. And it's more of like a girlfriend experience. And that will because it's closer to girlfriend, which is closer to monogamous culture and normative culture, it can be read as A, not as dangerous, whether that's true or not. Sure. And it can be read as more acceptable. And that can provide some cover for people, but it can also be really alienating. You know, they might not feel solidarity with other kinds of sex workers. And they can also sometimes like not reach for certain kinds of support because they feel so different than other sex workers, or I don't need that, or who would I even turn to? So it's if clinicians are really wanting to work with this population, getting super curious about what are the pros and cons of the kind of work that you do and the way that you do it. And even working inside, just because somebody is working through a computer, I've known clients who have gotten doxxed and had to leave their home, mm. pack up as quickly as possible and get out because they had children and they now their location was no longer safe. 
That's interesting. I was going to comment on that there was kind of the further away from sex or the further away. So, you know, folks that are working at home at their computer, that kind of stuff have some, you know, kind of that false safety, it sounds like that needs to be aware of. But it it seems like it's definitely an evolving profession as there's more, you know, there was kind of phone sex when I was growing up. That was as far away as you could get from the physical act. You know, now there's content creators and there's a lot of opportunity Mm -hmm. that wasn't there before and and is part of this little bit more removed and so potentially less understood and maybe Mm -hmm. also feeling less capable to reach out for support because of the differences and those types of things. Mm -hmm. I think it's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I don't usually use the word community anymore for any particular groups. I think you build community, but this is a culture that is always on the front end of technological adaptation. It is amazing. You go back to the Gutenberg press, like the first things that were printed right were the Bible and then porn. Those were the two <laughs> things. Like, like really, if you're interested, there's really great, like just gorgeous, like graphics and stuff. But this is a community that is always on the front edge. And again, I would want clinicians to really work to see their clients in multiple dimensions, situate them in society of how do they know what to do? How are they getting support? What are some of the structural or interpersonal barriers? But also, like, what is the creativity? And I'll just add that for folks that are listening, if you're wondering a little bit about questions to ask related to wanting to be curious about people's situation in the industry, there are several assessment resources in the book that really speak to specific questions that folks can ask so that we're not making the assumptions about, oh, this person divulged or disclosed that they were in the sex industry. And I immediately started thinking about these ways that my client was in the industry. I'm getting curious about what that might look like. And I want to add to this, going back to something that you said a few moments ago, Jamila, is, you know, for clinicians who want to do this work, but I know Katie and I have both realized recently that we have clients who are sex workers who had come to us for completely different things and the proliferation of things like OnlyFans and kind of the direct-to-consumer online platforms like this allow for many more people to explore this part of their lives. And it may not necessarily be a clinical specialty that you start with or somebody that you are actively seeking out as being competent to treat from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Sooner or later, I mean, this is California, 3,000 hours to get licensed. I guarantee you, <laughs> <laughs> you're going to come across somebody who has done sex work or is currently doing sex work or who may do sex work. And the way that clinicians speak about sex, speak about sex work, will all flag if the client's safe or not, you know, to have these kinds of conversations. But we really, in the book, we wanted to have this really relational approach, meaning like just truly relationship-based. We're not here to shame anybody, but to have some containment and to have some, you do have to have a certain mindset that you want to practice if you're going to do this work. We were very clear, not everybody should be seeing folks who are sex workers. I smiled when you were talking because I think Jamila and I have joked often that we often will hear folks that will say things like, oh, I don't think I've ever had a client who's a sex worker. And we'll often say, well, (laughs) is it that you've not had a client that's a sex worker? Or maybe that person just hasn't felt safe enough to tell you um, because the likelihood that folks are involved in the industry is a lot higher than I think we as a field care to admit. 
Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. Well, and I think it's interesting because there's the potential that it's also not the presenting problem. That's right. Yeah. And most likely it may not be the presenting problem. I think Mm -hmm. the bias is that they're coming in because they're this damsel in distress and has this horrible trauma and are wanting to get out of sex work. But in truth, it might just be their job. And there's an acceptance and an understanding, but there are other things that are coming into play Mm -hmm. that are really more relevant. The question I have is, when we're doing clinical work with someone whose presenting problem is not sex work, but they are a sex worker, how does that how does that interplay in the work that we're doing as a clinician? I think the first thing is, is to figure out if that person has actually disclosed their identity as a sex worker, regardless of what the presenting problem is in the initial assessment. Disclosed like to folks in their life? Is that what you mean? Are you talking about disclosed to the therapist? No, disclosed to the therapist. Yeah. Okay. okay. So yeah. So thinking about if they've disclosed that identity to you in the therapeutic space. And sometimes what you'll find is, is if it's not the presenting problem, folks will make the decision not to disclose just because it's easier. And so they'll say, you know, oh, I work at home. Right. I, I work on, I work for an online company. And so you'll get some of those pieces and then it may come up because of safety, because maybe that's exacerbating other things that are they're experiencing, or there is, let's say some sort of externalized mental health symptom, like anxiety and depression, where that work might come up later. And then that person has to make the choice of like, well, not only do I need to disclose this, but if I disclose it later, do I then have to get into a conversation with my therapist about why I didn't disclose it earlier. And so I would say, for me, what often comes up if it's not the presenting problem is always just being really open about the fact that folks don't necessarily have to disclose things in the beginning, and that you're not necessarily going to punish them for being not the best client for not disclosing certain pieces that people understand their own sense of safety. But I think it intersects with a lot of different things and that it just comes up when it needs to. I don't know if that makes sense, Katie. Oh, it totally makes sense. I guess the question is, how do we make sure the clients know that we are open and accepting and sex positive or or those types Mm -hmm. of things? Like, What are the recommendations you have for folks who are truly wanting to be present and available regardless of the presenting problem, to folks who are are doing sex work? Yeah. I think a big piece of it is just being able to note in the beginning that you can bring up anything in our room, whether that's sex or drug use or having conversations about a variety of different topics. And what usually happens for me is that folks might, especially if they don't want to bring it up in the beginning, there may be a kind of look like, oh, okay, that sounds great. And they may not pick it up right away. Mm-hmm. And then five, six, seven sessions later, it's, hey, remember when you said that we could talk about? And so part of it is just planting the seed in the beginning. I don't know, Jamila, if that rings true for you. Completely. That's what I do. And when I train people, I'm like, here's a script you can use. If you like it, great. Want to modify it? Fine. But of mentioning those things that people feel like they can't talk about in therapy. So I literally will say, similar to Theo, In this space, you can talk about anything that you want to. You do not have to answer all of my questions or any of them. If it makes you feel uncomfortable, I'll skip it and we'll move on to something else. But in this space, you can talk about sex. You can talk about money. You can talk about how you feel about your parents. I will list 
the things that usually are like the big stress test ones. Because so often I've heard, and Theo, I know this is true for you, you've heard clients who are like, oh, I couldn't possibly bring that up to my therapist. Whether it's sex, money, sex work, drug use, any of it. And so we're doing half work. And then I'm gonna, I'm just gonna call it out. We have therapists who are like, I'm so bored with the client, nothing's happening. I'm like, <laughs> have you like one, how is that possible? Two, have you really seeded the ground that this is a space where they truly can bring who they are? And I will also be really clear that A, there's still rumors in the sex work community that therapists can and will call the police if they find out that their client is a sex worker. That is still floating around in different communities. Wow. Yeah. Or that if the clinician finds out that the client is a sex worker, they will call CPS. And there is a lot of legitimate and understandable fear of clinicians. That is not so, like, no clinician should be calling CPS simply because somebody is a sex worker. Yeah. To clarify, that's not a call. That is not <laughs> that a call. That is not a CPS made. report. At all, ever. And there's still that fear that the power that we have as clinicians is profound. And this is a population that cannot take that risk. And so they're going to be scanning for a sense of safety, maybe for months, and they may never say anything, which is heartbreaking to me, understandable and heartbreaking. You've described thinking of individual therapeutic interventions as opportunities to push the needle on social change. And how does this compare with the way that therapists are trained to interact with marginalized people? Jamila, do you want me to start that or do you? Go for it. Yes, start it off. So I think historically, therapists have been trained in a really interesting kind of individual level about the way that they see the world and the way that they need to intervene. And it's only been in the last... I would say 20, 25 years where this larger systemic approach to understanding people's worlds and contexts have really been incorporated throughout people's experiences. So it's not like a class, but really kind of the formula from which people learn all of their stuff mm -hmm. about therapy. And I think the cool thing about social change agents is that when you are trained from a systemic level, it's almost impossible to divorce the need to make larger systemic shifts from the individual work that we do as clinicians, that you can't actually do one without the other, that if mental well-being is really the goal of your life's work, mm -hmm. to do it in the room and then leave the room and be like, oh, my work stays in the room, right? If I care about the human <laughs> experience, it's kind of almost impossible not to look around and see opportunities for our work everywhere you look. Right. The very implications of if I want wellness for my client, and I know that there are systemic issues that impact directly their well-being, then I do, like written into all of our, our code of ethics, and also just the ethics of being a human being. But the implications are, I need to look around at the other places I can intervene, the other places where I can say something, the other kinds of conversations that I can have, or even, you know, again, not participating in certain kinds of conversations that are more normative doesn't mean that we have to be cussing everybody out, you know, at a cocktail party, <laughs> but it can mean of, oh, I'm not going to go along with that particular kind of joke, or I'm not going, I'm going to poke a little bit at that language that's being used in this moment, all the way up to what you read, what you teach, who are you presenting. I never came across liberation psychology in school. I am very upset by that. <laughs> 
Yeah. Because that would have changed so much. I didn't hear about other Black psychologists and Black therapists at all. And I know that, like, trans folks and LGBT, like, well, the whole, I just want to say, like, non, non-cis het folks, we don't see ourselves reflected that much across programs as a paradigm. This industry is, what, 100 plus years old, and the last 30 years have been incredible. And that's not making its way into our classrooms. And even just noticing that and talking about that in class is pushing the needle. And I think it's critical that we do that. What changes do you want to see in the field in the next five years or the next 10 years? I mean, so what I've already said, I would love for trauma-informed care to be literally the paradigm that is taught. I would love it to be centered in what I call kind of a, a pan-humanity kind of way of thinking of it, of we literally have data on what works for humans, what creates trauma, and what reduces trauma. That should be woven through all of our classes. Like, hands down, what is relationship? We've all heard, right, the metadata study of, like, it's the relationship that the client feels they have with the therapist. It's the biggest predictor. I want that as the baseline. Yeah, I would echo that the decriminalization movement for sex work is a growing one worldwide. And I have a fantasy that mental health plays a pivotal part in that, and that we're able to help lawmakers understand that the legal structures that are not only in the United States, but throughout the world that oppress sex workers have real severe impacts on their mental health. And so in the world that I dream of, we as mental health practitioners have a huge role in the decriminalization movement. Can you tell us a little bit more about your book here? Oh, we're just so proud. (laughs) (laughs) It is our little baby, isn't it? It really is. It's our thought baby. What I love about it is this did come out of conversations. This came out of what I call righteous anger of, again, instead of just having conversations that don't really go anywhere, but that, you know, are just kind of individual. We're like, we should write something, something that becomes that resource that we were needing, something that keeps us kind of accountable to where we want to go. And then something that, again, can kind of seed, you know, I think of mycelium a lot, you know, that can become part of mycelium that changes again, what's possible. So the book has kind of the intellectual academic grounding in the first part of what sex work is. And then it really, again, kind of situates things historically and then moves on to here are more practical ways to understand this. We have vignettes, which I love. Yeah. And I'll just add that um, Jamila and I have been able to consult with a variety of different folks in the industry who were a pivotal part of not only creating the infrastructure, but also gave us feedback as well as did some interviews that are also kind of peppered throughout the book. We have four amazing folks that have worked in the industry who have given us a lot of feedback. And that that last half of the book is really focused on assessment, conceptualization, and treatment. I want people to be able to dip in and out of it, kind of a, it's not official supervision, but it can be an additional support. And so the book is The Essential Clinical Care for Sex Workers, a sex-positive handbook for mental health practitioners. And we will put a link for that in our show notes over at mtsgpodcast.com. And where can people find more about you so we can include links to those as well? Uh, They can find me at www.jamiladawson.com. And I'm on Twitter, soon probably to be at Spoutable. It'll be Jamila Dawson. Mm -hmm. 
And my website is theoburnsphd.com. And folks can find me on Instagram at theoburns, one word. And follow us on our social media. Join our Facebook group, The Modern Therapist Group, to continue this conversation. And if you like the work that we're doing, please consider supporting us on Patreon or buy me a coffee. And until next time, I'm Kurt Woodhelm with Katie Vernoy, Jamila Dawson, and Dr. Theo Burns. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code MODERN gets you two free months. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. 